Hi, welcome to the Church Split, and welcome also to part two of my Trinitarian series. Now, I was hoping to do this in like three videos, and because that would just be poetic, Trinity, tri Trinitarian, you know. But I'm not sure if that's actually going to happen, because there's a lot of information that I want to give you, and I want to be thorough. I want this to actually be more of like a class, and more academic than it is as somebody explaining the Trinity in five minutes, because there's plenty of videos of that on YouTube, but there's not many deep dives. So I'm going to take the deep dive, it is what I do, it's what I prefer, it's what I'm good at. So anyway, now let's talk about the Trinity in the New Testament. So the Trinity in the New Testament... Uh, again, is where we actually finally see the doctrine of the Trinity fully and completely revealed. Now, for anyone whose objections to the Trinity are things like, well, God can't do that, you know, God is only the one, I think you, you highly misunderstand the fact of what God is able to do. If God can't exist in multiple persons at once, then how can he not, how can he be God in the first place? God can do pretty much, you know, do anything that is do anything he wants to, as long as it's not contrary to his own nature, right? God can't do that, which is evil. But anyway, the point is that God is definitely powerful enough to be able to exist in three distinct persons, yet still in a singular person. So I think this is something that is silly when people try to bring some of these objections up. But I do want to make sure we address the Trinity in the New Testament. So let's hop right into this. Uh, so first off, in the in the New Testament, we still have clear made clear that there is only one God. So we see that in 1 Corinthians 8.4, Galatians 3.20, and 1 Timothy 3.5. So the entire Trinity is still part of the one God. Again, don't mischaracterize what a Trinitarian might believe here. Now, the entire Trinity is seen in a singular passage and occurrence, which is at the baptism of Jesus Christ. Matthew 3, 16 through 17 says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So notice this. The Spirit of God was coming down. It wasn't, it didn't say, and he saw God coming down. It was the Spirit of God. And this, like I said, the, in the last video toward the end, I understand that the, the, word, the verses about the Spirit are going to be a bit more vague as opposed to a direct clarification and declaration that the spirit is God, but I don't, what else would the spirit of God be, right? It's the spirits of God. So anyway, but this is my beloved son and whom I am well pleased. This was God completely taking ownership of who Jesus Christ is. So notice this, Jesus also is not a God. This is one of the things that we see, um, in Jehovah's Witness and, and like even Mormonism, that Jesus is a God or he is a divine being. No, he is God. Yet we see the Spirit separately always mentioned from him, as in right, right here, descending, and that a separate voice came from heaven. This makes no sense, really, um, and would be entirely contradictory unless you believe the Trinitarian doctrine or something that is awfully similar. So each person of the Trinity is mentioned separately also in the Great Commission. Right there in Matthew 28, 19, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice how all three of those. Now, this is where the Trinitarian doctrines make very clear. If the Spirit was simply God's 
divine presence, right? Like, okay, it's just God's, God's omnipresence, so that's just all what that is. That's all the Spirit is, is his omnipresence. Well, if it was only his omnipresence, then why would I baptize him in the name of the Father and the Spirit? Wouldn't I just baptize him in the name of the Father if the Spirit is just his general overall presence? But it's not. Notice how it's a separate. in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. These are three things. Now, why would I be baptizing in anyone else's name outside of God's? Well, this is God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This makes sense. And in 2 Corinthians 3.14, it says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Holy Spirit is a separate entity, and so is Jesus, and so is God. I find that interesting. Also, the New Testament not only distinguishes the Son from the Father, but also proves that Jesus is equal, one and the same with God. And this is interesting, uh, and this is why actually um, Jesus was attacked so much. Not only was he like stomping on the, the traditions of the spiritual leaders at the time, but he was also claiming deity. He was claiming something that is divine. Because even to say, hey, I am the son of God, you have to understand in the Jewish culture what it means to be the son of someone. It means you are taking on their heritage and their nature, and you even have their um, inheritance. That's what. Then you also get their inheritance. So all these come with lockstep of being their son. So to say, I am the inheritance, I will inherit heaven, I am the son of God. I am one in the same of his nature is something that was heresy. And that's why Jesus was also attacked so much. But in Hebrews 1, 8 through 9, it says this. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, Right here, he talks that the son says, the son says, your throne, O God, is forever. So notice how the son is talking to the father directly. And he goes, therefore, God, your God has anointed you with oil. So we see again, what's interesting here is that the scripture uses the same word for God to describe both the son, which is Jesus, and the father, Elohim. So he goes, therefore, God, your God. It's really interesting. So he uses the same word. And, the, and let's talk about this for a second. What does the Greek word mean in the New Testament for God? This is where some people will start playing word gymnastics or they go, well, this word could mean blah, 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 blah. But it's the word theos or theos. Now, what's funny about that? You, theos, you understanding this? Theology, get it? Uh, study of God, huh? Huh? Okay, whatever. This is a masculine noun spoken of the only true God, also used to describe all three Godheads of the Trinity. We see this word used for each and every one of them. So again, it's making pretty clear that, hey, this is God. Honestly, it would take an entire book, really, for me to dig into all this and to get into every single passage and break every single passage down by Greek and Hebrew. You can read these books yourself. I highly recommend The Forgotten Trinity by Dr. James White. It's a great place to start, and you can break down from there. But luckily for us, we also have the Bible, so you can just read that too. So each member of the Trinity is God. Let's talk about this, because I know this is where the hot takes start coming in. Each member of the Trinity is God. Not only are all three described in a divine nature, but they're all described as equal to God, 
the Father of, they're all described as equal to God the Father, all with different functions though. So let's first start hopping into different parts of it. So first we, I'd like to address, these are all separately called God in this video. So in this video, we're going to talk about how each one of them refer to them as God. So the Father is God. John 6, 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man, which is Jesus, will give to you. For on him, God the father has set his seal. So God the father is God. Hence, God the father is quite directly quoted, actually. So God the father is not just a title that we've given him as Trinitarians. So, and then also Romans 1, 7, it says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to, his, to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he's wrenching them as distinct, but we also do see some verses here in a little bit that Jesus is God. So, and in first Peter one, two, according to the foreknowledge of God, the father in the sanctification of the spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So I right there, God, the father, and according to, and according to the foreknowledge of God, the father. So the God, the father is pretty clearly God. That's not usually the controversial part, right? Most people go, yes, the father is God. The problem is that you're making Jesus God too. That is where people are most likely going to disagree. And of course, we even see that Jesus prays to God, the father, you know, Jesus himself. And of course, I, this is the other thing that Trinitarians get, well, why would God pray to God? It, again, you're not understanding the fact that the son might be distinct from the father, but they are, and just because they are both God, but they are still distinct. The son is made completely human and completely flesh, and he's living a human life below as a divine, as the divine. But God has not completely separated himself entirely. God still exists as the father. So anyway, the son is God. Right there at the beginning of John, John 1, 1, the word became flesh. Now, by the way, this is one of my favorite verses in scripture because the Greek word here for word is logos, and that's where we get our word logic from. And there's a whole deep dive you can really take into this, but I'm just going to take it at its plain and simple meaning first right now. The word became flesh. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. So Jesus was with God, and the word was God. So Jesus was God. The word became flesh. Logos, the logic of God. I'm already, I'm, I'm already hopped down that road. Uh, the word, the logic of God became flesh. And in the beginning was that word. And the word was with God and the word was God. There is something powerful here about God's order and his structure. And I'm really going to have to stop myself from diving into that because that's a whole fun thing that I like to explore. But we're not going to do that today. Well, we're not going to do it. You're not going to do it. Okay. Romans 9, 5. Okay. Romans 9, 5. We're just going to move on. So to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh is the Christ, which means Messiah. And that's a title only given to Jesus, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. That is about as clear as day as it gets. Okay. He is the Christ and he is God over all. Pretty clear. And again, if there's only one God, you can't say that God, Jesus is a separate being. If he is God over all and in all, he can't be a separate being. He has to be a singular being with God. So it only makes sense. Also, John 1.14, to hop back into that. Um, 
John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Son from the Father. Now, I want us to notice this. If he's from the Father, yet he is God over all, then this is only confirming the fact that the Trinitarian doctrine has to be true. How can he be from God and yet God over all if the Trinitarian doctrine is false? There's a reason why churches have prescribed to this doctrine for thousands of years, and that's because it's the only thing that makes sense of all these verses. John 1.18 says this, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Do I need to say any more about that verse? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known, which is Jesus. Colossians 2, 8b through 9 says, Not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Notice that. He's saying, hey, no, no, the deity of Christ, he dwells here bodily. Like this is his body. The the son is different. In fact, when you see the description of the throne, especially in Revelation, you'll notice that the son is more described as a beaming light next, standing next to the father. Hebrews 1.8 says this, but the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. So your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Uh, and this is what he's saying of the Son. And he's calling him God. So 1 John 5.20 also says this, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. And if you look at a lot of translations, by the way, it makes these things pretty clear. Um, you'll notice, though, if you go to like the NLT that the Jehovah's Witnesses used, it actually augments the co- complete augments the scripture to make sure that it doesn't say clear statements like this: that in His Son Jesus Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. And then, of course, probably the most definitive verse uh, that just says it and comes right out and says it is Titus two thirteen, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. He's including God and Savior. What what did it say in the last video in Isaiah? That there is only one God and there's no one Savior besides God. And if right here, Jesus considered our great God and Savior, it only makes sense that Jesus was God. And Jesus had to be God in order for his sacrifice to be able to be sufficient enough to appease the righteousness of God. Only the blood of the holy and perfect righteous God in the flesh could appease the righteousness of God, who can't even be in the presence of sin without the sin just being just instantaneously judged. So there's a lot of things to understand about that. Now, the next thing I want to talk about here is that the Holy Spirit is God. Acts 5 through 5, 3 through 4 says this. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Notice he's not saying lie to the Father. He's saying lie to the Holy Spirit. And to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Notice this. He, go, call, he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he moves on and says, you lied to God. 
He's equating the spirit with God. Now, like I said, the, 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 this probably as clearly as the New Testament will come out and say that the Holy Spirit is also God. But you can easily see that in here. When Ananias lied, he lied directly to God because he was lying to the spirit that was present. 1 Corinthians 3.16 also says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you. It makes sense. If I'm his temple and his spirit dwells in me, if you ever understand how the temple worked, it was looked at as the general presence of God. The temple represented in Jerusalem the presence of God amongst his people. So if I'm the temple and his spirit dwells in me, that's the presence of God in me. That is God in me. So all throughout the New Testament, we see the Holy Spirit being equated to God and is the crux of the empowerment of the church. The Holy Spirit is the very center of where we understand the fact that we can be led by God. The Holy Spirit is so integral to the Christian life. You know, a lot of time, we all oftentimes talk about God. You know, we pray to God the Father oftentimes, although John 14 does talk about praying to Jesus himself, which also is a huge problem, by the way, if you're not Trinitarian or you don't believe Jesus is God, uh, it's a real problem. John 14, he says, pray to me, but then we're also supposed to pray to the Father. But anyway, uh, the, so Jesus is the very crux of our salvation. He, through him, we have our justification. And God is the one, of course, who orchestrates all things. And then the Holy Spirit is who guides us and is what indwells us upon our belief. So, I think this is important. So there is only one thing that, that is holy, right? When you were saying, what is something that is truly holy? Well, you know, we had uh, when Isaiah, you know, that whole moment where he takes the coals from the angel and he goes, oh, I cannot do this for I'm a man of unclean lips. And there's this whole thing there. Only God is holy and we are so unholy. So if God is the only one who is holy, then anything that is described as holy must be God, really. So if there is a Holy Spirit, then he, it can only be that the Spirit is God. And many, of course, would argue that the Spirit of God, that the Spirit of God and the God uh, and God the Father are one and the same. You know, all these are separate. These are the same thing. But honestly, we see these referred to so much as being separate. Like, you know, they'll refer to the Father and the Spirit as separately. Again, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So if this, if God is the Spirit, then it doesn't, and the Spirit isn't, has no distinction from the Father, then it makes some of those points moot and kind of awkward. So anyway, however, since the New Testament refers to them separately, and we don't see the Holy Spirit prominently until the revealing of it uh, at the Pentecost, it is safe to say that likely the Holy Spirit is separate and distinct from the Father. I think this is completely acceptable theologically. And when we really start digging into this, it just makes clearer and clearer that we do see hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament, and especially some prophecies. And then we see Jesus claim those prophecies as about him. And then we see these fleshed out as multiple things being referred to as God, yet confirming that there is only one, so that there must be a plurality to the being of God. I was reading, um, is God a moral monster? And um, Peter Cullen, I forget the author. Anyway, is God a moral monster? Making sense of the God of the Old Testament. He described the Trinity as uh, Cerberus the dog with three distinct heads, each with its own mind, but part of the same dog. And I was like, that's a good way to put it, I guess. Uh, I 
not sure there's probably a fallacy in there somewhere that someone's going to call me out on, but I just thought it was a pretty distinct, pretty interesting way to put it. But the important thing is, is to understand that this here is not polytheism. This here we're going, there's one God, but we see that our, that one God has revealed himself in three distinct persons. So anyway, um, this is that for this is going to be it for this video part two. Uh, we're going to just wrap this up here so that way we don't keep these too long. And then in the next video, part three, we're going to be discussing the hierarchy and the Trinity. And I think that can be helpful for you. And I hope it's a blessing to you because uh, we do serve a God of order and structure. And we see that order and structure really come through in the next part of this series. So thank you for tuning in. My name is Will. This has been the Church Split.